organizers, they talking abolishing the police and this is they talking abolishing the police and this is they talking abolishing the police and this is Hello. Hey, this is Ergo. It certainly is. It is as ergo as it could ever be. We've we've reached peak ergo, folks. (laughs) Yeah. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. We are deep in the midst of our uh, abolition suite. Uh, Damon, you want to tell, tell the folks a little bit about what the hell that means? Yeah, so, you know. If you're listening to this when it's fresh coming out or if you're going back in the archive, we are in the midsummer of 2020 and we are experiencing an uprising like nothing that has ever come before and are in robust social movement building times. And at the center of that movement is the demand to defund uh, domestic carceral systems, namely police and prisons, under this larger ideological umbrella that is abolition. So, you know, over the past Six to ten years, there has been a lot of people building these notions and ideas out of a longer lineage and legacy of liberatory work to not have violence be the way that we govern our society and determine human relationships. Uh, and now it has reached a zenith and a high point. So we here at Ergo, we love y'all. And we know, you know this might not be easy for everybody. So we're trying to make it as bite-sized as possible if our long, dense conversations. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> but, if but in, possible being the key phrase. But in a sitting, uh, we want to create this space that can help, you know, educate, popularize, break down, go through some of the nuances from some of, honestly, uh, the best thinkers and, and, and builders uh, of the knowledge that has made this movement possible. So before we get into our very special guest on this episode, we also wanted to give you a little update on what's been happening here. Each week of this suite, we're going to give you uh, some more info about what's going on with the Defund CPD campaign uh, and, uh, yeah, and the work happening on the ground in Chicago as this moment continues to feed movement. So, so Dane, what's been going on over the last few days? Really exciting. We just came out of a weekend, a three-day weekend, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th of July, mass resistance training. Uh, we trained over 500 people throughout the weekend. And so that's really exciting because, um, you know, before a, an action of 500 people <laughs> would be really exciting, but to build up and train folks to go out and take their own action, to plug into campaign, to plug into movement work, uh, and to help exponentialize and grow this message of abolition, but also particularly right, right now, defund CPD. So if you want to get plugged in with that campaign, uh, look up hashtag defund CPD, bit.ly that defund CPD. It's everywhere. It's very Googleable. It's very Twitterable. And the link is in the show notes. And you got the show notes. Like, come on, you are prepared. Uh, so it was, it was really exciting. Uh, we're moving forward towards, if, if you're hearing this in real time, um, there's going to be a mass organizing virtual meeting July 16th. Um, and then also just want to shout out, there's going to be a black and indigenous, uh, defund CPD, uh, solidarity action, uh, on July 17th. So the 16th and 17th are the two calls to actions or places to plug in moving out of this weekend. Uh, uh, but also just follow Defund CPD uh, and also the Black Abolitionist Network on all socials, and and you will be you will be up to date on what's going on here on the ground in Chicago. All right, let's get to our episode today. Our guest is a writer, lawyer, academic thinker, community builder, movement worker, the author of Invisible No More: Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. Andrea Ritchie is our guest today. So so excited. She's you know a cherished voice and mind and spirit uh, in this work and movement. And you're about to hear 
as best as it can be articulated, um, the way gendered violence is at the center of this movement and creating a world beyond our norms of gender violence is at the center of solutions. So without further ado, let's just get to our conversation with the one, the only, Andrea Ritchie. Yeah! We have a very special guest on the line with us. Dame, I think this feels like a, like a you intro. Just I can oh. see the smile on your face. Oh, just, you know, one of the most significant and important thinkers and writers. And I'm sure you did some stuff at some schools. And I know you did some stuff with some law. Uh, but just also, <laughs> you know, one of the people that knows and has done the work, but shows up in a way that makes it so human and so understandable and undeniable. Uh, we have the phenomenal Andrea Ritchie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's the best intro ever. You I'm already it. crying. Yeah. I'm already crying. Yeah. So in, in those tears, we, we, we have a tradition, a two-part question to ground us, to get us going into this conversation. At this time, a defined time, however you will, this day, hour, season, lifetime. How is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Wow. What a great question. I think the world is treating me pretty well. This moment feels inconceivable in so many ways in terms of just the gravity of what we're facing. You know, we're in the middle of this triple pandemic of COVID-19 and police violence and a massive economic crisis, the greatest economic crisis of our generation. So actually, as I'm saying that, it feels strange to say the world is treating me well. Mm -hmm. I am very fortunate in that and excited about the portals that this unfortunate and deep devastation is opening up for all of us to imagine deep transformation. And so I think those are the parts that are treating me well. Mm. And how I'm treating the world, I'm really trying to move in love and um, creativity and faith in this moment. Mm. So I can definitely go down to a place of deep despair and Mm. fear and concern and rage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm trying to feel those things, but then also move to what love calls on us to do in this moment mm. and what love is calling me to do in this moment. That's mm. beautiful and powerful. We have a, we got plenty of time for the fear and despair and the love, but I want to talk about portals for a second. <laughs> I love that word and that, I don't even know if it's a metaphor and how you used it. Uh, Cause it doesn't, no, it doesn't it's actual, like we're it's, in a portal. <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you just tell me a little bit more? I'm just curious. What did you, why, why that image or that experience of, of a portal? I think a lot of people are are describing this moment as a portal. I'm trying to remember where I first read it so I can credit it. I mean, I think probably Adrian Marie Brown, but many people have, have talked about this moment as a portal in the sense that it's an opening, right? And it's a it's an opening that has come through great loss and pain and and grief and at a massive scale. But it's an opening. And it's an opening that we can shove our vision of the world that we want to create into and that other people can shove their vision of the world they want to create into. And so we're in a, in an ideological and um, spiritual battle, I think in this moment to fill that portal with mm. what we want to see and what we believe in. And so I think this triple pandemic of COVID-19 of police violence and economic crisis and that is, you know, building and, and coming um, really is, is creating opportunity for us to say what what do we want and what are we refusing to accept any longer mm. um, in terms of we're refusing to accept the ways in which 
our societies are structured on Black death and accept high levels of Black death as a cost of doing business, of living, and of indigenous death, and of migrant death, and of um, women's death, Black women's death, particularly Black trans women's death. I mean, there's so many ways in which this moment has exposed what we know is that structural racism, racial capitalism are premised on those things. And it's been exposed through COVID and the ways in which um, the decimation and devastation of Black communities has happened under the pandemic has exposed those things Mm -hmm. in such stark relief that people are, you know, it's always unavoidable, but now really unavoidable. And, And this question of like where we put our resources and how we respond to that is this opening, right? It's just, you know, at this point, everything in city budgets is up for grabs. Everything about how we survive this pandemic and the coming climate catastrophe is, it is, feels like it's up for grabs. And I know that there are forces that are trying to contain that and, and push that in a particular direction. They're very strong. I'm not saying the portal is, you know, wide open and we can just kind of dance through it. You know, it's, it's definitely more of a birth canal. <laughs> and then there's a lot like coming through it and we're trying to figure out how to um, push through the vision of the world that we want to build mm. that is going to uh, reverse this uh, trend or this, this imperative that prosperity and public safety comes at the expense and to the exclusion of Black, Indigenous, disabled, migrant life and lives of women, girls, and femmes and trans people. It's a, a mass rejection of that premise, basically. Yeah. And I just want to say that all extended metaphors have a comfortable home here. So, so we appreciate. <laughs> I mix them up. Yeah, I do all kinds no, of we, things with yeah, them. No, yeah, we are a fan of all of the metaphors. It's an extended metaphor safe space. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to, I want to hook, I hook, I'm hooking on to the use of that word exposure, which I feel really lines up with the impact that you have brought to the space. And so I also want to kind of like reintroduce or give context. I think one of the parts of this time is that in our bubble, you are like very significant, right? And and we have been operating in this bubble, um, but right now it's popping a little bit. And so people are are being exposed or are now seeing things or listening to conversations uh, that they may not have had access to or may not have been wanting to tune into until the world provoked them to do so. Uh, And so I just want to ground folks in like your work um, and how that can help shape our conversation, particularly, you know, I think the thing that people make you talk about the most is your book, which is so significant for movement, Invisible No More, because it it documents and grounds us in how not only is police and prisons this violent, destructive, abusive force, uh, but the way that we understand and respond to that, even those who are most plugged in, uh, do it in this really fragmented, hyper-patriarchal way that invisibilizes or disappears or unnames uh, the harm and the destruction and the oppression of Black women, both by the state and in the household. Um, you know, I don't know. Do y'all hang out a lot? Like the Richie sisters, like you and Beth Richie. <laughs> <laughs> we do. People often ask us if we're related by blood and and the response is an enthusiastic no, but we are sisters in struggle. Yeah. And um, I have learned so much from, from Beth Richie. Everybody must read Arrested Justice yeah. immediately. Yeah. So much of her thinking and her writing and her herself also has informed me and my work. Um, and so, yeah, Invisible No More is very much rooted in the work of Insight, which is an organization that um, Beth Ritchie co-founded along with Andrea Smith and Mimi Kim and Clarissa Rojas and um, a number of I mean, 20 other people, um, many uh, I'm not naming here. And we recently actually, I want to point listeners, and maybe if y'all can drop this link later, to a 
celebration we did called Abolition Feminism uh, Celebrating 20 Years of Insight, where we talked about kind of the contributions of insight to the current moment and how deeply for me it shaped my understanding of this intersection that you just described, Damon, of you know, state and interpersonal violence and how they intersect and mutually reinforce each other in Black women's lives. And I've certainly seen that in my own life and my own family. Insight just provided this incredible sort of um, home where when I started reading Insight work and and being getting meeting Beth and being around people, being like, oh my God, like there's there's a whole bubble, like you yeah. said, of people <laughs> who are in this conversation and really pushing me to grow my thinking around abolition. And I think you know, looking at policing through the experiences of Black women, girls, queer, and trans people gets us to abolition much more quickly. Exactly. Because it's so clear that this pretext of protection that police and mass incarceration have been built on, in fact, is a complete lie mm-hmm. when it comes to Black women, girls, queer, and trans people. Um, and also that this illusion of protection is actually a primary site of violence, that yeah. a lot of the cases that I documented over the past 20 years of police violence against Black women, queer, and trans people happen in the context of calls for help, calls for assistance, right? I mean, we need to look no further than a Tatiana Jefferson who was killed by police who were supposed to be checking to see if she was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that is literally, um, unfortunately, the context of far too many cases of fatal violence, but also sexual and physical violence against um, Black women, girls, queer, and trans people. And also the ways in which the violence that um, police in the state perpetrate against us signals to the rest of the community that that's perfectly okay and in fact acceptable. Mm. And so I think of another Brianna, um, Brianna Hill, who who died, uh, was killed. Well, first of all, was beaten by police very publicly outside a nail salon. I don't know what brought them to the scene, but um, that was what happened. And then a few days later, was found dead. And, and I feel like the connection between those two things is so clear, and we don't talk about that enough mm, that, mm. you know, we talk, for instance, about uh, Toyin Salau and, and Remy Fells and just the epidemic of violence against Black women, girls, queer and trans people. And we're not thinking of the role of the police in contributing to that through the violence that they enact on us as well as they're able to protect. And I think that the lesson I learned from Insight is that looking at this issue through the lens of what would actually make Black women queer and trans people safe is how we get to the world that we want on the other side of the portal. Mm. So, so out of that, I want to, I want to give you your gas and credit you and then go into like a big question about the moment in time. Right. So just the way you just demonstrated right now of, of documenting, of, of cataloging, of naming with specificity and with name and with, with humanity, these tragedies that are not isolated, that are systemic, that are patterned, that are happening by the hundreds, by the thousands, um, and giving face and giving name to it has made, the movement that is so robust now possible, right? If it was not for this abolitionist feminist push that countered this carceral feminist, like popular movement uh, that the Richie sisters are kind of like, you know, two stalwarts and like holding down. It's um, so, so funny. I keep saying like, <laughs> like a, like a old school R&B act. <laughs> there was one called the Richie family. My parent, my parents had, the, I can see the LP in their record. And oh. we have, we have our outro music. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> the Richie family about to come for the publisher. Um, <laughs> but but in that, right? And so 
having the the infrastructure then to have a say her name campaign or t- or to know how to respond to San- Sandra Bland in ways that we would not have been prepared for it wouldn't have been possible without you know arrested justice and without invisible no more so thank you one mm-hmm. for your work and 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 the thank education you. that you've provided to society uh but out of that I want to pull like the central theme and expand it of like this time and the idea of, you know, you said exposure of like visibility and invisibility. Uh, Cause I think one of the things you name through having the feminist approach is that there is this terror that is really complex, really well organized nationwide that happens in the shadows, that happens in the dark. Even well intended people don't understand because they have not seen literally what goes on. And so now, we are in one of those, you know, high intense moments that there is an exponential wave of people who are willingly ignorant or passively ignorant uh, who are being provoked and seeing things that they never were able to see before. And so I just want to pull out this notion of visibility. What does it do? How do we invisibilize? How did a system that was billions and trillions of dollars able to function with invisibility, right? Like, I don't understand how they were able to hide all of this violence and disappear all of this trauma in our popular imagination. So as this time has made it really as exposed and made it really visible, how does that provoke you as someone who has theorized around the notion of invisibility? What a great question. Um, Thank what you. a big question. I, I, I think I uh, <laughs> it's such a big question. That's why I gave you I, a gas first. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And also just want to lift up, um, you know, the folks who have been, highlighting that intersection for a long time. I think one thing, for instance, that hasn't been visible, I think that in this moment, particularly say, people say, you know, why is nobody talking about Black women and girls? It's like, is Black women and girls been talking about Black women and girls <laughs> and police violence for a very long time? Yeah. Like Ida B. Wells wrote about lynching of Black women, right? Yeah. You know, and that was invisibilized. So let's not also invisibilize the our own resistance, right? And and our own, and the resistance of Black women um, to state and interpersonal violence over the years. You know, the civil rights movement, a lot of folks don't know that before Rosa Parks refused to move her seat on that bus, she was part of an organization called the Committee to Defend Gertrude Perkins, which was organized around a Black woman who was raped by two Montgomery police officers. Mm. She was organizing around state violence against Black women long before she was a target of it. And many of the women who were leaders in the civil rights movement, who made the civil rights movement possible, were, were very much involved in addressing sexual violence by law enforcement against Black women, physical violence and fatal violence. So... That organizing has been going on for a very long time and continues. And so I, I want to make sure that piece is visible. I think the invisibility of police violence against Black people more broadly and state violence and the impacts of structural violence and exclusion has been invisibilized because it's what makes this country possible. And, and so from the moment of a time of chattel slavery, it was important, for instance, to invisibilize um, the structural sexual violence against Black women that made chattel slavery possible in the U.S. for many years after the transatlantic slave trade was abolished and that was invisibilized by these narratives about Black women, right? That Black women are Jezebels, are sexually promiscuous and deviant and salacious and... Or don't um, feel pain. And don't feel pain, right? Or or are bad mothers because, because the rate of infant mortality during slavery was so high because of the conditions of slavery, then it had their story had to be the way to invisibilize that was to say black women are just bad mothers, they're like animals, they're terrible at taking care of their children. And that's why it's okay to sell their children away from them because they're like cattle, mm. right? You know, as if cattle don't care also, right? Which is I was about story. to say animals that are mothers are very good at taking care of their young. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, Che Gossett does incredible work of like talking about those connections, mm. right? The ways in which speciesism and anti-blackness are 
are connected. So I really want to point people to that work. So, so those stories are what make Black pain invisible, right? Are, are the stories of dehumanization, the controlling narratives about who and what we are and how to interpret our behavior, right? There was also very um, ableist controlling narratives that if you're resisting um, slavery, you must be mentally ill. Right. Um, and we're going to, in fact, incarcerate you in an asylum um, under that pretense. We're yeah. going to create a name for it. There was a condition, right? What, what was it yeah, called? Yeah, so it's called draptomania, mm-hmm. which means I don't want to be enslaved by another person and subjected to conditions of torture and uh, enslavement. And we still see that to this day, right? When people resist police violence or resist structural racism, then people's individual behavior is problematized, right? And so often when, I, when I'm talking about police violence against Black women, et cetera, what I get back is, well, if Black women just behaved, then they wouldn't experience this, right? So it's, again, the story is still being told. It's still being pathologized. It's still being criminalized. Resistance to criminalization itself is being pathologized and criminalized. Um, so I think those stories are really um, deep in creating this invisibility. And I really want to lift up, for instance, in Breonna Taylor's case, you know, the incident report of her killing says no one was hurt Mm. when a black woman died in a hail of 11 bullets and bled out in her own bed because eight hit her. Mm. The incident report says no one was hurt. That to me is just one extreme example of, of the issue that what creates the invisibility that you're describing Damon and what perpetuates it. So that's perpetuated by the media. It's perpetuated by policymakers, by legislators, by, stories, propaganda, right? We're seeing a lot of cancellation of, of police TV shows um, because finally people are saying, oh, wait, the media <laughs> is helping us, is, is propping this up, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, and just every narrative that we hear about someone who was killed by police or was hurt by police, sexually assaulted by police, in, is designed to invisibilize what is in fact the cost of the current system. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I want to say about that is that a lot of the response now to, well, we if we defund the police or if we dismantle the police, what are we going to do about gender-based violence? Which is always like the, the, like the, the dart that's thrown. Absolutely. To like it's d- like, oh, the, the gotcha the, question. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and I'm just like, ask that question any other day. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Nor are you asking like the police, what they're doing about gender-based violence because they're doing nothing about it. They're perpetrating it. And so I think that's the, there's one invisibilization of the fact that most of us who are in movements for abolition, of policing are survivors of violence and that we are calling for abolition of policing because we want more and better for ourselves and for fellow survivors of violence in this current system is delivering. Um, and that that question in and of itself invisibilizes the gender-based violence that is perpetrated by police, by child welfare authorities, by prisons, by probation, by parole, by the entire apparatus that is being propped up supposedly in the name of protecting us from violence. Um, and so that's another kind of invisibilization. So I think Invisibilization is about serving the purposes of the structures that um, that it supports. And so the unmasking, the unveiling is what is then pushing us to be like, oh, we have to, this is actually about an entire structure that we need to address. The limits, there are limits to visibility. I, it, visibility mm. has to then shape action, right? Which I mm. think, um, like the title of my book is both, it's a statement, you know, post-2015, Black women's experiences of police violence are no longer invisible. They have, are enjoying, not enjoying, they are seeing an unprecedented level of visibility from at least my 25, 30 years in this game. Mm. And it's still a demand. 
because still people will rattle off a list of names of people who have been affected by police violence. They might now throw in Sandra Bland or Breonna Taylor, but mostly we're still thinking about this as an issue through the lens of the experiences of Black men who are who are presumed to be cisgender and not uh, queer, which you know then invisibilizes the experience, for instance, of Tony McDade or Jihad Akbar or other Black men who are queer or trans who have been killed by police. And then it's it's still an aspiration, right? That and it's that that we move beyond visibility to integration, that we understand policing through the lens of the experiences of Black women, queer, and trans people, because that gets us to a different place. It gets us to a broader understanding of what policing looks like, that it's not just cops on the street, it's child welfare workers, it's social workers, it's mental health professionals, it's health professionals, it's a whole system of policing of racialized gender. And then we won't make the mistake then of being like, oh, let's not do it through police police, let's do it through child welfare enforcement, because then we'll see that policing happens, you know, in the same way, or let's not do it through mental health treatment where policing happens in the same way. So visibility is just the starting point. And I feel like we need to get off that starting line to how does this shape our understanding of the problem and how does that shape our vision and our demands for addressing it? Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of something we've been talking about a lot, which is as people who have been having this conversation and these conversations already, you set kind of that like that demand. And then as it moves, it's your job to then come up with the next demand and then the next demand because there's you're, you're it's always pulling the center, right? I think about it like a tug of war. And if you don't have that next piece, then, you know, it, it's much easier even for what you were demanding to get co-opted and, and spun. I want to just go back for one second to the like gotcha question. What do you say when people ask you, like in interviews, when people ask you that question? How, how do you typically respond? The way I just did. Okay. <laughs> I, I just say, you know, there's a study that shows that on average, a police officer is caught in an act of sexual violence every five days. And that study is based on 10 years of data. So Caught. Uh, awesome. Exactly. Right. Exactly. 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 A police and that, officer is caught. A lot of way. You know how hard it is to catch a police officer doing anything? Exactly. Exactly. And even all the researchers, including those who are former police officers, will say that's just the tip of the iceberg. I tell them that currently 43% of domestic violence survivors and two-thirds of sexual assault survivors don't call the police. So the solutions that we have right now are already leaving behind the majority of sexual assault survivors and close to the majority of domestic violence survivors. So those folks are left out in the cold. And they don't call the police for a number of reasons because they've been criminalized when they've done so in the past, because they're undocumented, because they might have a warrant out, because they think they won't be believed based on these stories about Black women that we just talked about, right? That Black women are inherently violent, inherently animalistic, can't feel pain, can't be hurt. If there's a DV story, they must be somehow responsible for it. You know, all these stories mean that the response in the past may have not been favorable or they've heard about or seen responses or they've seen how their communities are criminalized generally right. and don't want to call on a force that's killing their communities and, and people they care about for assistance that's not going to come, going to come late, going to come after the fact and not be helpful and potentially be harmful. Right. So I think that's one piece. So we're already leaving folks behind. And then the police, when they do respond, I think folks don't understand police and to be primary perpetrators of the, both of those kinds of violence. Like I have many stories documented of police responding to calls for help in domestic violence cases with physical violence, responding with sexual violence. In Chicago, Mariam Kaba organized a campaign with Chicago Task Force Women and Girls around the case of Tijuana Moore, you know, a Black woman who called police for help because she was experiencing violence in her home and then experienced sexual violence 
from the officers who responded and then experienced a prosecution for trying to call attention to it. You know, I mean, so what message does that send to people who experience sexual violence? The police are not the answer. They're dangerous. So that's the response that I say. And I highlight to people that most people who are calling for abolition of police or new community-based strategies for safety are survivors of violence who are calling for better, deeper, more transformative, more effective, more sustainable responses to violence that will actually keep us safe and prevent future instances of violence and allow people to escape and avoid violence. And the current system is not addressing these issues is, is the short answer. And the system that we're dreaming and building would put ending violence against black women, girls, queer and trans people at the center and, and assess every intervention about, is it increasing safety for this group of people or is it not? And if it's not, then we're moving to another plan. This current system absolutely is not. And every indicator will tell you that. Every statistical or metric will tell you that the system right now is not providing safety for the people that I care about and that we care about. As someone who knows the statistics and the information and the names, how do you deal with the frustration of people who believe the premises that they've been taught over the statistics uh, that you're telling them? (laughs) Because <laughs> I think there's that that cognitive dissonance is the mechanism that the stuff gets perpetuated, right? When people mm. do learn the information, they go, "Well, that's such a deep challenge," and, and that's the from the privilege of not having your body policed in that way, right? But that's part of this work right now is trying to get people who haven't had that experience to believe the numbers and those stories and those names over the premises that they've been told in the past. Just to be real, like, I think that there's people who have experienced this kind of policing who still are invested in this kind of policing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Often we talk about, you know, the counter argument, another counter argument is, well, black communities are calling for policing. And I think it requires us to be like, in so many communities, the only response that you can get from the government for anything is a cop. The first person from the state that a young person comes into contact with is a cop and not someone else who's offering help, who's offering support, who's offering resources. And so when people say they want more police, often what they're saying is, I want, I want a response. Right. And then the, the, the challenge is to expand our imagination about what that response could be and, and how it could be different and, in fact, more expansive, more effective, more safety producing than the current response. We don't want more of what's already not working. Um, but it's hard to see that when you're not getting anything. So I think the response that I have to that, I mean, definitely is frustration, but it's also a recognition that it's not just a um, financial divestment from law enforcement-based responses to, or criminalizing responses or punishment-based responses to everything that we need. It's an ideological divestment and an emotional divestment. Like, it's a crisis of imagination. We have to try and imagine something different than what we've been taught. So many of us have been taught that the value of our lives is measured by how long another person will do in a cage for hurting us. And so we see that, for instance, right now in the calls for justice for Breonna Taylor. People are saying, we want an answer. We want a response. And the only response that we have been told or offered or, or learned is the most significant response to harm done to someone is to put someone in a cage. And we have to be like, is that going to provide healing and justice for her family? First of all, likely not. Um, Is that going to provide 
resources for the community to transform the conditions that produce her death? No. Is that going to stop that from happening in the future? No. So what could we do? Where could we look, for instance, to Chicago, where there is a movement, successful movement for reparations for people who have experienced police violence, for a, a much better and more expansive response to the violence that, that she died from and that her family experienced, and one that would transform conditions so that could never happen again. Like, how do we expand our imagination there? So I think, yes, I, I have frustration, and then I have to have empathy and recognize, as, as Mariam and other people and tell us over and over again, that there's also cops in our head and in our hearts, and that we have to reimagine consequences, accountability, and transformation in our own lives in order to be able to do it on a larger scale. So when, I, and then when I'm sitting with anti-violence advocates, I'm sort of, I just, I, I get that people don't want to see certain things. And then I call that out. I'm like, you know, there's a reason that y'all aren't talking about police violence against women because it makes it uncomfortable for you because you're advancing police as a solution to violence against women. And so it's not in your interest to do that, but you're gonna have to stop. <laughs> you're gonna have to face the fact that you are leaving survivors behind and that you are exposing survivors to violence and that you are advancing a strategy that, might provide temporary safety in some cases, but that is not providing lasting prevention, transformation, or change. Um, And it's just an invitation into conversation constantly about if we're really centering the safety of survivors, is a strategy working? Is there another strategy that we need to be pursuing? That is the the question I was about to ask. So I want to go deeper in that. I want to pull some things out that like I'm hearing and feeling and other things, you know, I've heard you say. So one thing that like I've been thinking about particularly to that notion of, oh, I've been harmed and the only way I can see the value of my life is by someone experiencing this time-based, very linear torture. So like my pain scale was a nine, so they should get nine years. If my pain scale was a 10, they should get 10 years. And how that's just a reflection of you know, how our whole society has alienated people from like time and space, right? Like we are paid by the hour, we pay our rent by the foot or by the yard. Um, and, and this whole idea of like commodifying time and space. So therefore relationship or recovery or healing is then this time-based linear thing as if seven years for one person's life is going to do the exact same. You know, it's a this this like flat notion that this time mechanics can heal all or fix all when seven years for one man and seven years for another person might be two totally different experiences and has no actual connection to the harm that was done. So that's one thing I want to pull out. Another thing I've heard you say very well, and it's also a Merriam thing, is like you name these extreme, horrible acts of sexual violence that police do. Like, you know, we have to really get in the nitty gritty and FOIA and interview and do ethnography to find. But then also I've heard you name that just at its norm on a day-to-day, what its standard above board practice is sexual violence. And that's something that I've been trying to say much more explicitly. What happens when someone is imprisoned and the way that their body is searched is sexual violence. What happens when a person is frisked is sexual violence. Any person has visited someone who was incarcerated, if that happened in any other space with someone who didn't have a gun, we would name that as a, as harassment and assault. Uh, but it is institutionalized and embedded into this state practice. So that's that's another thing that that I've, I've learned from you. But the, that last thing you just said about in these spaces 
that have these carceral responses to violence and it is intending to center survivors in a way that's really paradoxically violent. I think we talk so much about how feminism has shaped abolition and how, you know, the pushes against state violence and black liberation has been shaped and reshaped and formed and reformed by anti-patriarchy, by trying, you know, our movement more than anything at this point is a movement against gendered and sexual violence on a, on a tangible ground level. And so my question is on the other side, how has abolition shaped and reshaped feminism from your ex- experience or in you know gender violence spaces that may be more mainstream or more carceral how do you see that push or that strain happen i heard you already starting to, to talk about that tension can you pull that out some more so um i'd really encourage folks to read the insight critical resistance statement on gender violence in the prison industrial complex because it really is exactly and and it was co-authored by Beth Ritchie, my sister in struggle, um, with other folks. And it really is sitting in that conversation that you just referenced, Damon, where, you know, abolition was was moving forward and, you know, Black feminists inside abolition were like, you need to contend with gender-based violence. And people contending with gender-based violence in Black communities and communities of color um, were really being challenged to contend with this, this. There's no amount of, you know, cultural sensitivity training or <laughs> intervention or, you know, harm reduction that we can do. This is, the system is not preventing violence. It's criminalizing survivors. It's criminalizing people who live at the intersections that we talked about at the beginning. And so I think certainly abolition feminism has been a, I wouldn't say a response, but a, a contention with carceral feminism, um, as you mentioned, right? Which is that, and this work is very much documented not only by Beth Ritchie's work, but by Mimi Kim's work. She she calls the movement against gender-based violence's relationship with uh, the prison industrial complex as the carceral creep. And how, hmm. you know, basically, there, she has a great piece called Dancing the Carceral Creep, which is basically that, you know, as people are calling for more attention and action around gender-based violence, the state was like, okay, we'll do that. And we're going to co-opt it and serve and use it in service of our mass incarceration agenda. Mm-hmm. And we'll even get to look good and say, oh, we're doing it to fight gender-based violence, right? When in fact, it's producing gender-based violence and doing nothing to stop or transform it. And so I think abolition feminism really has pushed back to be like, if we are serious about the safety of Black women, girls, queer and trans people or survivors of violence, period, we cannot continue to invest in a system that's perpetrating the violence and that's leaving so much violence unaddressed um, that is engaged in organized abandonment, as Ruthie Wilson Gilmore talks about, of Mm. our communities to economic, structural, um, and other forms of violence and deprivation and suffering in the name of a system that continues to loot resources from those communities. I mean, police are the looters. Police are looting resources, as we can see in all these budget fights from our communities, from the things that we need to stay safe, things that survivors need. The number one thing survivors say they need to avoid escape or intervene in violence is housing. Hmm. And when you have 40 to 60% of a city's budget going to policing and not to housing, then survivors of violence are not getting what they need and they're getting a thing that's not helping. Abolition feminism is about understanding that and and framing that and understanding and framing that not just in intersectional context around economic, structural, physical, sexual, and other forms of racialized gender violence, but it's also about looking at that in an international frame and sort of looking at how gender-based violence is also used to fuel global imperialist 
struggles, whether it's, you know, the war on Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, or even currently the, you know, Muslim ban is supposedly in the name of keeping people who would enact gender-based violence out of the U.S., you know, through these, again, stories and narratives um, that are deeply Islamophobic and um, anti-Arab. And I think abolition feminism is a, is really a contention against those frames and those narratives and, and really aims at exploding them and, and pushing us to a much more liberatory vision of a world without gender-based violence and all of the structures that produce it, including policing, militarism, imperialism. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you make that global connection and that militarism connection, because I think we know the ways that gender-based violence and sexual assault are also part of like military strategy and have been for a very long time and are part of U.S. military history and strategy. And even just uh, like in the last few weeks, seeing the conversation around, which um, I think I might get her name wrong, Vanessa Guillen, the, who's in the army, who was um, murdered at Fort Hood and, and seeing the, the mechanisms with it, like there is the, the violence and the tragedy of that attack. And then there's the, the mechanisms of the military to swallow that and invisibilize that and seeing how that's much less possible now than it has been for the whole history of that happening, I think is like a really important microcosm of exactly what, you know, your work has done and what we're, what we're talking about is like these institutions have these mechanisms built in. They don't have to panic and figure out what to do each time. Like they know how to do this with these disastrous global results, not to mention the the pain put on specific people. I want to go back to the housing thing that you mentioned real quick. I know we're bouncing all over a little bit, but that that is the single most important piece. Can you just uh, maybe flesh out a little bit like some of the ways that, that folks who aren't in that situation might not see of how housing is so deeply interwoven uh, with this struggle? Sure. I just really want to emphasize what you just said in the context of also Damon's question, which is that sexual and gender-based violence is a weapon of policing. It is as much part of policing as a gun, a taser, uh, handcuffs. It's a tool and it's a tool that is deliberately deployed by police officers in Mm. order to control, contain, police, surveil, um, punish particular communities. And I think that's what people are starting to realize when it comes to, you know, chokeholds or any number of, or no knock warrants or whatever, right. Which is that, you know, you can do all this police reform and change all the policies in the world. Inherently policing is about how George Floyd was killed, right? And policing is about how Breonna Taylor was killed. Policing is about how Tony McDade and Rashad Brooks and all these other folks were killed. That's the, it's, it's a feature, not a bug, I guess, is the right. way people um, talk about it. So I just, I want to include gender-based policing in that. And, and yes, that that's much more understanding, understandable or visible when we look at it internationally um, or when we look at it historically. We talk about, you know, rape was, a tool of colonization of this continent and of slavery and so forth, we have to understand that it's still a tool of those things. So, mm. And then in terms of housing, I mean, yeah, straight up when, when uh, survivors of domestic violence are interviewed about what their biggest needs are, it's, it, this answer is consistently housing. When I've been involved in studies and conversations with uh, people in the sex trades, which I think people are often concerned about as a site of violence for, of gender-based violence and often advance criminal punishment responses and, and criminalization and, and carceral solutions as a way of responding to violence to, against people in the sex trades. People in the sex trades are like, the thing I need was housing. I traded sex for a place to live or I traded sex to pay my rent. And so if you're concerned about violence and uh, people's 
exposure to it in the sex trades, then you should be advocating for housing. You shouldn't be advocating for more policing. It's also, you know, when people find themselves in situations that um, are becoming violent, they often can't leave because they can't afford to, um, because they can't afford housing to get away and they can't afford safe housing or housing far enough away. Um, And so people both get into situations of violence through housing insecurity or housing unavailability, and often they can't leave due to housing unavailability. And I think even now, you know, COVID, as we keep saying, is like revealing or uncovering or just making harder to look away from certain realities. People are like, oh, if you're being forced to quarantine somewhere or you're in a stay-at-home order and there's violence in your home, that's a problem. It's like, yes, we need to make sure people have safer places to quarantine. And, and maybe that should trigger to us that a lot of people's homes are unsafe. And maybe if we just had more homes, people would have more options, right? So I feel... It's like on a lower level when they realize like, oh, every student doesn't have the same access to internet. Oh, exactly. Exactly. It's like yeah, newsflash. Yeah. Okay, great. Before, I'm... when you were exactly work and giving tests and standing <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So w- w- one thing that it's, I guess, sensitive, not really, not for me personally, but it can be a sensitive conversation for folks, is I will personalize myself, right? So... I internalize and uphold the Black feminist tradition and Black queer feminism as this intersectional approach against patriarchy and anti-Blackness. And basically what the reason why they intersect so fluidly or so so beautifully is because it's both us, the central theory of like, if we take care of those who are the most abused, if we take care of those at the bottom, that flips everything about our world and without even really getting into details would just make everything exponentially better, right? Um, To simplify. So I I feel that. I understand that. And so when I hear that we need to take care of Black women, girls, queer and trans folks, I hear that that will then create more caretakers that Black cis men will, you know, benefit from, will create more stable households, will, will, you know, the pressure of feeding people, of providing medicine, right? Like, will take so much of the tension and so much of the exploitation and extraction away that even without a specific policy or approach will just like naturally make the world better for all Black people and therefore all people. But the way we are taught to think about incarceration and policing, the way the news talks about violence, we only look through this very sensational, hyper-masculine, patriarchal competitive, there's this gang over there, there's this gang over there, it's a bunch of crazy boys and men who shoot each other and beat people up and rob and steal and are, you know, the trouble of our society. And then there's this desire to make sure that then that is the focus and that's where all of the response and attention and the conversation needs to be limited to what do we do about Black men. And I know a lot of cis Black men do not hear themselves in the same way white people don't hear themselves in Black liberation in this Black feminist approach, uh, even though they are obviously present. Um, And so I understand it. I sometimes can struggle with the nuance of like how to immediately say that. Uh, Me and Kathy Cohen, we talk about it privately, you know, something she's actually, you know, sensitive to and and, and gives a lot of space towards. Um, And so for you, how do you, one, check the problematics of Black men wanting to insert or center themselves and not accepting the fact that they actually aren't, or we, (laughs) that we actually aren't on the bottom. And just what is your framing on how this is actually about you and this will stop the shooting on the South side, you know, type of thing, because that's what everybody wants to know about. It's an invitation to conversation. It's an invitation to saying, you know, this is actually how we tell the full story, right? So, you know, if we include domestic violence in our conception of gun violence, Black women experience more gun violence than any other demographic group. 
Mm. So, because most Black women who were killed are killed by intimate partners or someone that they're in a relationship with and a familial or intimate relationship with. And in most of those cases, it involves guns. Mm. And so we're not just talking about like the collateral damage of, you know, gun violence among men that, you know, might hit a woman or a child as we tragically experienced um, this past week in Chicago and across the country all the time. Um, it's actually that black women are targeted for gun violence by police. Also, we have to include gun violence by police in the concept of mm-hmm. gun violence, right? They commit 10% of gun-related homicides every year, so we could address mm. that. And then, um, and then we include domestic violence and gun violence, and then now we have a, a more complete and robust conversation, right? And then the thing that you said earlier about sexual violence in the context of stop and frisk and kind of every police interaction, I want to invite people of all genders into a conversation about how does looking at um, people's experiences of policing through the lens of black women's experiences, black trans and queer people's experiences actually open up more possibilities to talk about black men's experiences mm. um, and to, and to talk across genders. How could we imagine a conversation in a room where black trans women, black cis women, black queer women and black men of all genders and, and um, sexualities talk about, the spectrum of sexual violence we experience from the state and in our communities and the ways in which we can show up for each other around that. That's what a black queer feminist lens gives us. It gives us that conversation where we're not in a competing conversation where it's like, well, actually black men experience more sexual violence by police, or that's the only real sexual, like for so long, people talk about sexual violence by police. We talk about Amner Lima's sexual gross sexual violation by New York city police department officers. And we need to have room to talk about that on a spectrum for people of all genders and a black queer feminist lens gives us that and Mm. gives us that in a way that doesn't erase anyone's experience that also calls us into accountability with each other around complicity in that. Because, you know, I love the way you said that these are just wars among men. Um, You know, black people are like, well, maybe if there were more female police officers, we would not have this problem. And it's like, uh-uh. I mean, first of all, you see the photo of the white female police officer who was involved in the killing of Elijah Cummings, which, you know, is horrible. Sorry, so, Elijah McClain. Sorry, Elijah McClain. I'm so sorry. Elijah Cummings is a, is a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. <laughs> <laughs> Alive and well, as far as I understand. Yeah. I apologize. Elijah McClain. Um, you know, uh, the person who killed Terrence Crutcher, you know, is a white woman. I, and there's actually a study from Chicago that shows that the people who engage in most significant violence against black women are black women police officers, right? So I think we just need to understand that this is not about a fight among men and it's a fight among, you know, structures of power around law enforcement and communities who are experiencing it. And I think once we do that and look at it through the experiences of people of all genders, it's just so much more fertile ground for us to build a world of liberation and one in which we'll acknowledge that you know, people of all genders experience sexual violence in the home, in community, and from the state, right. and that what we're fighting is sexual violence. Yeah. And then also it might shape our response. We might not be like, people who commit sexual violence in our communities need to go do more time in cages, right? Because at that point, we're just moving the sexual violence. I know this is going to be very unpopular, but putting someone who commits sexual violence in a cage just means that they're either going to perpetrate it in the cage or they're going to experience it in the cage by guards or by people they're incarcerated with or against guards or against people they're incarcerated with. And so if we're against sexual violence, then we have to be against sexual violence everywhere. And that means we can't call for incarceration of people 
around sexual violence. We have to figure out a different response that is very much about accountability, very much about safety, but very much about ending sexual violence against everyone. And I think that's, again, the kind of conversation that a Black queer feminist lens offers that helps everyone see themselves in it, hopefully. You always just like make the system so clear, right? Like I remember hearing you say like the state depends upon the cis hetero nuclear family. We can't get into that. But just like hearing you right there around this notion of visibility and how we see and understand violence, it's it's at this intersection of media and capitalism for me, right? Of one, what stories are the most profitable that people will latch on to and like line up with what they know in movies and, and TV shows. And like that masculine competition is something that is really provokes our imagination. Uh, but also it's about visibility because the violence against women's bodies often happens in the shadows or happens in the home. Uh, it doesn't affect property value in the same way, right? So boys shooting out in a neighborhood, now this is a scary neighborhood as opposed to women who are silenced or their voices taken away and they're getting, they get shot in their home. You know, that does not have the same collective effect on, oh, now this is not a safe area, right? Um, and yeah, it's just how the state, but also our political economy at large, particularly racial capitalism, creates this invisibility and only promotes things that, one, are profitable or affects property. Wow, that is like, I don't know, like the 17th time you've completely blown my mind in this one-hour conversation. (laughs) I'm like... Yes. Just listen and learn it. I'm just more of that. Yeah. More of that. Um, so real. And there's so much you know that came out recently around uh, Breonna Taylor's um, killing around how you know it was part of this larger machine of gentrification that was happening. Um, so there's a way in which capital and and the things that you're talking about are always involved in police killings. It just takes more maybe layers to get to it, or or um, when we're talking about women's experiences and we or queer and trans people's experiences. But yeah. Everything you just said, absolutely. Yeah, that housing connection, the property value piece, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Usually, like uh, the things you say that blow people's minds on the show, we've talked about first. <laughs> so you, now everyone's getting my reaction. I'm like, damn, Damon. Um, oh, brilliance just pouring out. Just it's like, it's like. Uh, now um, <laughs> before we wrap, you know, we, we've gone all over the map and we've done a lot of naming of things and systems and, and violences. We set a world record for the most times the word violence is used on a podcast, which is <laughs> a good thing, important in this conversation. But we didn't talk that much about this moment other than the opening of these portals. So I'm curious for you, even if we're not stepping into the portal yet, but we're seeing it opening, like where are you feeling that that new openness and not even just in the ideas, like what does this feel like in your body? to have this moment that you didn't know you would ever see happening. Yeah. It feels... Every morning I wake up, I feel like I'm on purpose. I'm Mm. doing the work I came here to do. And I have an opportunity to do that now in a way that I didn't expect that I would have. I've been doing it in various forms and in various ways my whole life. But, um, you know, there was just a lot of walls and a lot of just basic, like, we're in a meeting, we're talking about police violence. People are like, and black and brown men and black and brown men. And I'd be like, and women and queer people. And I can't tell you like the number of meetings where that was my contribution. And then I would come back the next time and it would be black and brown men again in the document that I edited or that I whatever, you know, just literally vanished. So, so it felt like we were a long way. Like (laughs) we're very, very far from where we are now. And, and now every day I wake up and say, this is what I, this is the work I came here to do. And, and, and it's also 
feeling more generative and, and creative in my body. I think that, you know, a lot of my life, you know, I, I kind of joke that I spent the first 25 years like documenting the problem and I want to spend the next 25 years building mm. a new world and a new solution. And then the world was like, okay, <laughs> here <laughs> <Yeah>. you go <laughs> at, at tremendous cost. And I don't, I you know, no. don't want to make light of that, but yeah, it takes a toll to constantly be documenting and sort of highlighting and pointing to yeah, death and suffering and pain and destruction of the current system. And there's so, there's so much more life-giving to be engaged in the world of life-building, right? And life-making and, and of building the things that will make more possible ending or preventing or um, reducing the harm of violence. So that feels incredible. I mean, I'm just so inspired by people who are leading now, people like Damon and people like all the organizers in Chicago that I've learned so much from and about, like through and that I just every day watch and cheer from where I sit and who push me to grow and, and expand and, and get closer to that place. And I'm also just deeply both learning and inspired by the more the complexity of conversations. I think this thing that you were just saying, Damon, about like you know, just visibility of police violence was the thing. And then like individual officer accountability was the thing. And then civilian oversight was the thing. And what policies can we change on paper was the thing. And now like people are are having much more complicated conversations about how systems interplay, about not making mistakes of the past where we're like, oh, instead of policing, we need a public health response. Well, let's not uncritically look at what public health looks like, Right. right? Or let's not uncritically say, Social workers are the answer. <laughs> Both of those institutions have played a huge role in incarcerating people and our disabled family are very clear to be like, just before you jump wholeheartedly down there, let's, and let's really not just focus on police, but on policing. Yeah. And let's just not just focus on prisons, but the values and beliefs and instincts in us that produce those things. So another thing that I'm, I'm definitely finding myself in, in conversation with is, okay, so really what, what are we dreaming and how is what I'm dreaming reproducing some of the same issues or leaving some of the same people behind? A responsibility to be like in what I'm dreaming or putting out there, I really want to avoid mistakes of the past and also avoid lapses of the past yeah. where we've left behind disabled community, where we've left behind trans black trans women where we've left behind people on the margins of our community in so many ways right where we've advanced solutions without being led or accountable to the, by the people who are directly impacted by the things that we're talking about or or contending with and the last thing i would say is i'm being really pushed and challenged to expand my imagination because mine just like everyone else has been constricted by you know what we've learned and so i'm deep in I've always read sci-fi, always, like I read all of Octavia Butler in the 90s and, you know, all of the Mala Hopkinson, a whole bunch of black sci-fi writers and, and I'm deep in that now and also have started writing um, things that are not about policing hey. and punishment um, that are about <laughs> imagining worlds that are different and, uh, and really leaning into that, leaning into that possibility. We talk in uh, novels, we talk in short stories, what are we talking here? short story i need to figure out how to get out some people say it should be a novel i don't know well if you, but yeah if the short story gets long enough your your question exactly. is answered for you <laughs> exactly but there's but i think that's 
that's the the exciting thing about this moment is people really leaning into imagination because art is the way that we get to imagine things we haven't known. I mean, I continue to remind people and be reminded that the Chicago reparations ordinance was a submission to an artistic imagination of what justice would look like for the torture survivors. Mm -hmm. That so much of the reparation struggle in Chicago, and I hope nationally is about imagining what justice could look like and inviting people to continue to imagine it. Um, And I really, that's where we're, that's the process we need to be in. So we're definitely in contention for power. We're definitely about to face a backlash or facing a backlash. And we're, I've always been facing a backlash from police fraternal associations, from people who are invested and entrenched in the current system, from carceral feminists, from, you know, people who, who are invested in profit in the form of racial capitalism, which is constructed as we talked about right at the beginning on black death and indigenous death and disabled death and migrant death and and gender-based violence, as we've been talking about through this podcast. Um, so we're getting pushback from there. We need to be in formation and we need to be in alignment and we need to be clear about the fact that we're contending for power and that we are, again, like, as we said at the beginning, like fighting for what's going to be in that portal and that we're fighting against a huge risk and under conditions that are, are not ideal or favorable, pandemic, economic crisis, you know, black death, um, and fascism and white supremacy on... 10, you know, and so we're really in a fight in this moment for our lives in a lot of ways. And that fight requires us to be in our imagination also, and to be in joy, and to be in love, and to be in struggle with each other, and in in a battle for our own future dreams, to have them, and then to bring them into being individually and collectively. And so it's a lot going on in this moment. And I think a lot of us are feeling all of that in our bodies. I just want to invite us to try and make space to dream, try and make space to rest, try and make space to remember that this is abolition is a long struggle. It's a long game. We may be at a moment of intense possibility for progress. And then we're going to be in moments of intense backlash and we're going to try things and they're going to fail. And we're going to have to create space to mourn those failures, learn from them and try again And the only way that we're going to make it through all that is by making space for our hearts, making space for our joy, making space for our rest, and making space, most of all, for our imagination and the brilliance that it contains when we make room for it. Oh, what an important reminder. I needed that too. I'm sure other people do. But um, I do every day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us and talking with us and sharing your thoughts and yourself and your experience. how can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? Um, I'm at Interrupting Criminalization with Mariam Kaba and Woods Irvin, um, who many folks might know from uh, Critical Resistance or Broadway Youth Center or Transgender Intersex Justice Project. Um, and everyone knows Mariam from everywhere. Um, and you can find our work at interruptingcriminalization.com. Uh, where we have a toolkit around defund and other resources available. I'm also a member of the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table. Um, so check out Vision for Black Lives 2.0, Vision for Black Lives 2020, where the platform that came out in 2016 is being updated, expanded, and deepened around incorporating more centrally a Black queer feminist lens, a Black queer trans feminist lens, um, and uh, disability justice analysis. And um, you can also find uh, some of my work and that of my comrades at the In Our Names Network, 
That's inournamesnetwork.com. It's a network of over 20 organizations around the country who are fighting police violence against black women, girls, queer, and trans people. And there's lots of resources at invisiblenomorebook.com, including a free study and discussion guide created with lots of people from Chicago, including Asada's Daughters and BYP 100 and lots of other folks. That's free and just is a way of kind of tackling some of the questions we've been tackling with coloring and exercises and conversations for you and your friends over spades or whatever. And I think that's it. Those are the places you can find work um, that I'm up to. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful for you, for your spirit, and obviously your work and the passion you've put in into developing and building out this body of knowledge that has helped so many people mobilize and understand and digest and realize what their world really is. And so, you know, without you, we would not be as far as we are. So we we are grateful for you. And, and thank you so much for everything and for being here and having this conversation with us. Oh, my God. You're going to make me cry. Um, Go ahead. Let them, let them fall. I'm, 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 I started crying. I started the podcast crying. I'm in the podcast crying. I mean, thank you and your generation for your leadership and vision. There's just I, I get I tell people all the time I will follow you all wherever you go. Like I'm behind you. I'm cheering you on every day and I'm learning from you and having my mind blown by y'all every single day. So you are what make me and my work possible. So Mm. I'm grateful to you and your crew. So thank you. What a, what a freaking love fest over here. (laughs) That's how we're going to get free. That's how we do. It's love. (laughs) All right. uh, We're we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And we'll be back on the line continuing our abolition suite next week, showcasing the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Rosie. Daniel. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Look who's here in the studio. It's me. How's it feel to be in here? Well, I was a little nervous Uh earlier, but Mm -hmm. now I'm a little more calm. Wonderful. I'm staring directly (laughs) into your eyes. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah, but there's not always all this equipment in between us. Well, maybe this will help. Let's play a game. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe like a taboo. Taboo. Like I'll give you some clues and then you'll have to guess what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Does that know, make sense? I know how to play taboo, Daniel. Oh, you'd prefer if I did not taboo-splain? Yes, please. All right, let's get started. Timer on the clock. Ooh. All right, first up. Okay. It's an independent podcast app. Got it. It embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Mm-hmm. It has no exclusives. Mm-hmm. No premium content. All right. No paywalls. Great. And it's a great podcast app for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you think you know it? I think I do. Huh. What do you think it is? Sounds like the Overcast app. Beep, 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 beep. Toots got it. Yay. Look at that. I win. Nicely done. How does one get the app? Well, if one were to want to get the app, one could get it for free in the app store. Fantastic. Cool. You going to check it out? I might. Very wonderfully noncommittal. Excellent. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. Let's get out of here. Bye.